Hey, I'm Nate Flax. I'm Noah Longworth-McGuire. And this is Talking Lion. Talking Lion is a podcast focused on artist-to-artist conversation. We're primarily artists, a duo called Sleeping Lion, but we've been lucky enough to write, produce, and hang out with so many incredible rising artists since we started our project. Whether it's at sessions or parties or over cups of coffee, we've talked with our creative friends about everything. Music, life, love, and all the subtle complexities that come with being in the middle of a journey. Talking Lion is about hitting record in these conversations and sharing them with you. There's no real structure, nothing really prepared, just friends talking about life and what it's been like and where it's going. We recorded this episode with our friend Robbie Wolfson from the band Ripe. We were first introduced to Robbie through our college friend and current drummer Jacob Herlich via Twitter. Following his intro, we immediately met up with Robbie and hit it off, sparking a long friendship. Some context for this interview. Ripe had put out a record titled Joy in the Wild Unknown in 2018, and they were a few weeks away from kicking off their fall tour. An incredible singer and showman, Robbie's introspective songwriting and exuberant energy as Ripe's frontman is a staple of their vibrant live shows and fervent following. So, without further ado, I'm Robbie from Ripe, and this is Talking Lion. Robbie. How's it going, guys? <laughs> hey. Welcome to the studio. Welcome to Talking Lion. It's a nice spot. Good hang. <laughs> so you're visiting Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. How long have you been in town already? About 25 hours. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Well, thank you for, for being here. Thanks for... Uh, yeah. How have you enjoyed your... Uh, the weather's so great today, isn't it? <laughs> it's gloomy, but I still like... People in California just don't... Or at least in Los Angeles, they just don't have an accurate representation of how things are at. Like, people are freezing, and I'm out there in a t-shirt, and it's like, <laughs> no, this is like 10 degrees warmer than where I just came from. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we were we were all in Boston, like, for, like, the bad winters. <laughs> yeah. But, Oof. I mean, it's raining. It's, re- like, really... I mean, you could probably maybe even hear it, but it's, like, raining real bad. I see some, like, smoke off the clouds. I mean, not, like fire smoke like <laughs> it is raining it's raining fire, fire. <laughs> it's raining it, honestly, fire in Los Angeles the weather, the weather yeah. would be pretty terrible if it started yeah. raining fire I wouldn't be surprised yeah I mean you know it's the end times anyway <laughs> I, I would want an immediate explanation I, I'm, I'm willing to suspend disbelief for like a minute <laughs> like oh, okay wait what I think global warming no it doesn't get no, more warm no. than that well isn't like acid rain like not obviously fire rain but it's like chemicals raining from the sky i was recently and this is somebody stoned on my couch but like <laughs> i was told that it's it doesn't like look that much different than normal rain but if the rain is acidic it just like murders crops and like destroys nature because it doesn't take much to like screw up an ecosystem yeah. but it's not like like skin yeah like acid. a horror movie it's like ph like five but just imagine, you know, at one point it just gets hit by lightning and it's just fire, rain. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, I, I, if you it if might somebody start... who knew this stuff explain it to me within five to ten minutes of it starting, like it, it would be on the news. Yeah, I mean, That's this is... I, this I would isn't... Yeah. to see the news story of the fiery rain in LA. And if they don't know what it is, I'm like going to panic immediately. This They're isn't like... my like explanation. Like, I'm not saying that this is like scientific. I'm just saying it'd be... It would be objectively cool for it to rain fire. It would be it would be also subjectively as a person who has to live on this planet terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'd be able like if it's happening within like your field of vision, isn't it like fucking up your everything? Like this <laughs> like homes are not prepped for fire rain. Like yeah, no, it if would, it's it happening would... <laughs> around you, you are absolutely fucked. Yeah, like, that'd be yeah. so awful. Well, I mean, do you remember the first time you experienced hail? Oh, like yes. that scared the shit. I, I was in my ca- I was in my car or I was in my friend's car or something, and all of a sudden, like it was raining a little bit and it was snowing a little bit, and mm-hmm. then we heard plops and then a lot of plops. Like we were hearing it like yeah. hitting and and we're like it, and, and you know we were pelted with it too when we were outside and and that's terrifying yeah. like ice falling from the sky. I don't know. I feel like that's just one step removed from fire. Yeah, I mean, there's a song. One, one there's a song of ice and, and fire here. <laughs> <laughs> to be sung, you know, but uh, where were you, I'm just going to jump in, where were you born? I was born in Toronto. Toronto? Mm-hmm. I actually didn't, no, so you're Canadian. Yeah. Oh, a... A foreigner. Yep. <laughs> what? <laughs> this show's about to get super dark. We're about to learn things about everyone at this table. I just found out that Noah has a really hard time with, I hope not all f- people from, uh, you're from Rome. A uh, foreigner. <laughs> He, he just has problems with Canadians. I just like yeah. saying it. I just like saying it because yeah. it's just really, especially because like Canada is like so close to America. We're no, it's 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 a pretty similar experience yeah. as I'm sure you can guess. Uh, 
different in like very, very small ways that my brain likes to make feel bigger than they are, <laughs> but like they're not like 99% the same. Well, that's how I feel about being a New Yorker. There, there are little things and I like, I can fake an accent or whatever, but by and large, other than bagels being amazing my whole life, New York is just another city. Like, I feel that. I feel like now, like, if anybody said that to me, I'd be like, no, fuck you. Like, <laughs> no, New York is a different city. I think New York is just, like, the most city city. So, like, the, like there are threads of it all over. Like, right. metropolitan areas have certain things in common, but, like, it is the most dense. It, like, has, like, the most concentration of, like, underground art, it sometimes feels like. Like, it, it, there's just a lot of certain things going on is how it feels to me. Yeah. Uh, but I recently had, last time I was out in L.A., somebody said, like, unironically, like, New York and L.A. are the two most different places on Earth. And I was like, no, no, they're, <laughs> no, they're, very... they're more similar than most places. Like, like rural Wisconsin and New York are more different than LA and New York. When people are like, oh, but the people, like they're more real in New York. I'm like, everybody is everybody. Like, well, it's just also like so many people in both of those cities aren't from either of those cities. Like the vibe is like perpetuated by a transplant. lot of people that just showed up and also changed by those same people. Yeah. So. Did you have any siblings growing up? I have a little sister four years younger than me. Oh, wow. Hmm. Was she also musical? Uh, yeah, she's an amazing singing voice. Uh, she like did more musical theater and classical stuff than I wound up doing. And he's currently studying with the hopes of becoming a vet. Fingers crossed. Oh, wow. Knock on wood. Wow. Go Hannah. But yeah, that's it. That's my little sister. That's awesome. Um, and were your parents musical as well? Uh, both music lovers. I think my mom sang when she was younger. She definitely danced. And my dad like sings in choirs. But like, what did they do? Professionally, while you're mom's a speech up. therapist and dad works uh, in a business that remanufactures engines and transmissions. Oh wow! Ah, okay. oh, that's yeah, that's both, the business. Both very interesting, but also very, both very different. Sort of like for me, like they they're different. Like they're very different people. Yeah. Uh, so like the fact that they have jobs that would rely on very different skills doesn't like feels kind of natural to me. But like I grew up with it, so obviously it's like default mode for me. Was their their taste in music also very different from each other? I think that there was a lot of overlap. And I think also, like, they were both, like, I don't know if either of them had, like, a genre of music that, like, they kept really close to their chest and, like, defined themselves by. I think they listened to a lot of the music of the day. So there's a lot of overlap in that sense. Uh, I think my mom is a little bit more drawn to, like, crooner-style voices and, like, has a love for Cliff Richard that my dad doesn't <laughs> have. Uh, and, like, my dad has, like, a very strong fandom of this South African musician named Johnny Clegg. Huh. That my mom, like, likes his music. He's a big South African artist, so, like they connect over it to a point, but my dad's like a capital F fan. My mom is like a casual, like knows the songs and doesn't mind when it's on. That's awesome. Well, so did you, cause you, you both were, were musical, did you have like piano lessons or guitar lessons as kids or were you like, I'm more immediately into singing? I was in choirs first, uh, wound up taking singing lessons and uh, piano lessons and like a handful of guitar lessons. But mostly learn guitar at like summer camp because <laughs> Bobby brings out the acoustic and just the well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> kumbaya. Well, no, they there was like a guitar like elective. Okay, oh, I don't know what to, like the, <laughs> the only two languages I have to talk about that stuff is like the language the camp use, which doesn't make any sense outside of that bubble, <laughs> and like talking about it like college, and it wasn't college. It was like <laughs> an hour of guitar with like Dan Sadler. Uh, and who is like an awesome dude, but also like uh, looking back, a high schooler teaching a bunch of <laughs> tiny people guitar. There, I definitely took lessons growing up. My parents, like, I think both were aware that they liked music more than they had focused on music. And so, like, it from what I hear, I liked music pretty loudly, pretty immediately. Mm -hmm. And so, like, they were factoring that into like what I was doing with my time. Well, and was that what, what you were saying when people would be like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Or were you still on the astronaut? Uh, uh... <laughs> I have no idea. I steal a comedian's joke where like I, like people asked him what he wanted to be. And he said he wanted to be a fire truck. And I just thought, <laughs> I think that's hilarious. So. But I actually don't have any like clear memories of like, I want to be this when I grow up. Like the first conversations I remember having about it were more like, in the realm of actual jobs. Like doctor was on that list, but doctor was on that list in part because it was like a realistic profession that like some of my dad's friends did. Like it was, they wasn't like, I want to be the president. I want to be, like, right. I have no memories of being that young and having career aspirations. It was more like, I want to be outside. Doctors were also right, really yeah. cool on TV. Like, oh, like always so cool. have been like, I watched Dr. House. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, yeah. Well, I, my friend was saying something to the effect of recently of like being able to like heal sickness is like, a, like it's just, that's just a crazy thing. Like, 
that's such an insane skill for some people to have and some people to not. Like it's it really is as special as like it kind of seems at first glance. Well, it's like it's directly noble. Like I, you know, I was at a show and I met uh, a girl who like just raises money for charities and like that's like directly noble. Whereas I feel like what we do is noble, like with a couple steps removed. Like we, I think music broadly does. Help yeah, we also people. have the the uh, capacity to heal. Yeah, but it's have, a little but it's less like a couple, literal. Yeah, a couple steps, <laughs> removed, couple steps removed. You know, like as opposed to. Here are my hands, and I'm suturing up a wound or something or, or other. But mm. um, I think that that is interesting, though, like the sort of practicality mm-hmm. of it, you know? Yeah. No, you uh, you just do a very, very amazing and important thing, but it's like just a job. Was there a class in school that you were, like, really great at uh, outside of music? Uh, I, like, cut a lot of class in high school. <laughs> uh, I really liked English, uh, but I really, like like classic douche like didn't like a lot of the way it was taught in school like just thought that some of the books that we were choosing like didn't need the amount of time we were spending on it thought that like the way that Shakespeare was taught was like super not in I just I liked English and I liked books and felt like classes were being taught like there was no chance in hell anyone was ever gonna like a book right and yeah. like, I, I always found it very bizarre that people like taught Shakespeare as like a very in a very sort of serious like erudite kind of way, whereas like a good chunk of Shakespeare is really funny. And yeah, like Shakespeare sexy. was raunchy and like, <laughs> like no, for, he was a pop star. Like his, yeah. his stuff was like I think that an approach to Shakespeare that doesn't take into account that like part of the reason this stuff stuck around was because it was successful in its day too. Mm. Apparently, like why why expect anyone to give a shit now? Like it's just it's. For me, there was a point where it felt it feels like you grasp, oh, like stuff survives a long time because people, every generation that they could have jumped it, decided it was important. Mm-hmm. Huh. And like until that thing clicks, like so much of stuff, it's like if it's not easy to read, you need some sort of further justification for why you're gonna suffer through a mm-hmm. work as you like develop a taste for it. Yeah. I mean, I loved my, my English teachers. They were really good in, in, in school, but I feel like the curriculum around it was it just sucked any kind of in, enjoyment from things that could have otherwise been kind of funny or kind of interesting or kind of... Yeah, I, I have no idea. I like that most teachers I've had I've liked as people. They're like, I feel mm-hmm. like, and especially now looking back, like especially like teaching high school kids, like that sounds... Those people are saints. Ter- <laughs> that sounds yeah, yeah. terrifying. I was like... I think I, I think I am a better person now than I was back then. I was like not. I'm like not proud of that dude. <laughs> were you Were you in bands when you were in high school? I was in a couple bands when I was in high school. Uh, one that was like serious for a high school band. Yeah. Were you writing for that? Yes. Uh, what was that band called? We played one show as the Heebie-Jeebies and a couple shows as the Vibe Tribe. The, the Vibe, Vibe Tribe. Because. Because that, yeah, I, I feel like old <laughs> ba- old band names are just like a weird thing. Because like I like have nothing against it, but like if I were to name my band now, I don't think that any like all of the old band names just I, seem. I think that's true of literally every musician, which I yeah. think is fascinating. Everyone's yeah. got like you think it's so cool. You're when you're 15, you're like I, I was in a band called Tempest 242. What's that mean? Nothing. It was just a that's, word and a number because we thought that's, that's how you made pop punk names. Like, I was in a band called Six and Stones, which changed its name to Fall from Earth, which then uh, sort of morphed into the first law. Wow. Yeah. I like uh, at least you. Yours has like a thematic constantly, but constancy. But I guess it was the same band changing names. Yeah, more more or less. They all just were just a bit too like heavy handed angst. I think. Yeah. yeah. I also I I feel like like no band name is good enough or bad enough that it doesn't live or die on the strength of its band. That is true. Like I like I think that like. It, it's hard for me to divorce these two from each other, but like, is the name Radiohead like in and of itself good? Like, probably not. No, it's like somewhat memorable and like kind of basic, but you attach it to a thing that is really, really good. And all of a sudden, like, you start to think, you know, Talking Heads to me is like a smart sounding band name because of what the band is. Yeah. Well, like, I think about, I think my favorite example of this is Death Cat for Cutie. Yeah. Like, objectively, if you're like, do you, you know, do you like Death Cat for Cutie? I'm like, that's a, it's a weird, weird name, band name. <laughs> but like, obviously their music is incredible yeah. and is not even necessarily indicative of the name, but they made it when they were kids. You yeah. know, that's, I mean, DCFC for life, but <laughs> I, I mean, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the name of the first song you wrote? 
I think I actually called it her song. I think I was that oh, guy. No. I think I was in oh, seventh no. grade her and I called song. it that. There might have been songs before that, but that simply because of the sheer embarrassment. That's the one that, that is, sticks. That's, that one sticks. <laughs> what, what was inspiring you musically while you were starting these bands? Because th- those bands are super... Imp- I mean, we talk about like how Coding Cambria and Blink-182 and Say Anything sort of seeped into how we wrote back then like what what and then still sort of affect us now how do those the first two bands i like fell like head over heels with were radiohead and dave matthews band oh nice uh, i like wasn't in a like under like i no, i still don't understand it but like a lot of radiohead that i now come to call like my absolute favorite though like i was still very much a guitar driven radiohead fan mm-hmm. so like in rainbows okay computer the bands were like the records that really like immediately connected with me so it was a lot of like guitar driven like somewhat like fluctuating between like sad and happy mm-hmm. but like generally in the like weird alt umbrella that those yeah. two 90s bands <laughs> at the time like were like in the midst of creating i don't know that band was probably 50 percent covers 50 percent originals and like the originals because like you know i feel like the idea of being like intentional with a project when you're like 14 like right. nah we're gonna write what feels good and like if every song feels like it belongs to an entirely different band or an entirely different set of influences like no problem yeah well it looks um, just like it to a sense and maybe I'm, I'm just speaking from like the specific experience but there was like a sort of conventional wisdom around like originals versus covers like there would be a bunch of old musicians that'd be like oh play covers because when you're playing shows people really want that and then you realize that all they do are coffee houses doing covers like that's their whole thing you know and i think we just wanted to write you know original stuff and i feel you know but but obviously knowing like the the gap between what you're making and what you listen to is also very like hard to sort of stomach you know for sure i think for us we wound up like the covers were what we learned when we were because the guys that I wound up playing with like had been playing music together before I got involved. So like I showed up with being given like five songs to just like know that were other people's songs just so that we could like have a practice and like start to get to know each other musically without needing to walk in and like create right off the bat. Right. Uh, and like, so I think that for me, like I, I, I agree. Like there were definitely musicians when I was younger that were like, looking back, they were like gig musicians in like the wedding circuit or like the bar mitzvah circuit. And like, they were able to make a living playing almost exclusively covers. And it kind of seemed like that was a way to do it in a more reliable fashion. Right. Uh, but that wasn't why we were doing covers. We were, tr- we were doing covers cause like we were practicing before we were really a band. And you enjoyed those songs and yeah. I mean, it's like if, as lo- I mean, it was fun as hell to <laughs> learn a rage against the machine song. Right. In a high school band. Exactly. Uh, well, and, and given your, your current track record was, was that high school band 15, 25 members or uh... <laughs> no, no, it was a four, a four piece. Four piece. I um, still played guitar in that band. <laughs> so then what year did you go to Berkeley? Started in 2011. And was that when you first moved outside of uh, Canada? Yeah. Cool. So 2011, what, what did you study while you were there? Uh, did MP&E for a minute, then wound up doing pro music with like split between like a bunch of ensembles, some songwriting stuff and that MP&E stuff that I'd taken. Nice. Uh, and how did you, how did you meet the people that would wind up uh, becoming the band? Uh, partying. Partying. Uh, <laughs> like the first few weeks of school. Samson and Tori, who one of the guitarists and the drummer in mm-hmm. Ripe, they like made the, in hindsight, intelligent decision to like get an apartment right away, like not deal with dorm living whatsoever. Um, intelligent decision. That <laughs> plus the fact that they at the time wanted, like they had just left the band and they wanted to actually do like a Sly and Robbie style production duo. Oh, so wow. they were like very actively like throwing parties. And Looking for people. I don't even know if it was specifically with that in mind. I think it, like all of those things were sort of in a pot in their heads. Like, you know, it would doing the, all of those things would serve all of those needs. I don't mm-hmm. think it was necessarily like, let's yeah. throw these parties to network. But if you're a freshman in college, you guess, have this yeah. idea to do this production duo. You have a place that's not under the like thumb of Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. And like, it just, it worked. And um, were you like coming to, to school aiming to be in a band? No. I like, I didn't have any clear anything, uh, but I knew that like one of the reasons that like my folks were like down with Berkeley being where I spent time was because I like said that the way I was going to approach it was with like a stable career in mind as the goal. 
uh, which is why I started an MP and E. Like I thought that like engineering gigs were vastly more stable than they seem to be. Uh, <laughs> Cause I thought I was like, it's got the word engineer in it. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. you know, now did you, did you audition as a vocalist? Yeah. Okay. When, when was the sort of splintering from guitar to, to vocals? I was always singing. Uh, I guess I wanted to like with, with ripe, it was just pretty apparent that like there were two guys who were great at guitar and I wanted to try to like get comfortable without it. I was very much the like stereotypical, like with, as long as I'm holding this guitar on stage and playing guitar, like I'm doing something, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, my, my purpose is guaranteed. And like, I, that feels like a weird like attachment to have. And so it was like, well, it would be weird for me to be third guitar. I like both of these guitarists. And like, I kind of have this thought about trying to get better at this weird thing that like, I'd like to figure out. That was kind of how it started. And then like, once it, you start to feel at all, like for me at least, once I started to feel good in that space, the like feelings of goodness kind of snowballed into each other. And then mm-hmm. it became a thing that I wanted to do just to do it. Well, and I think what's also really cool, and I, I love the, I haven't seen you live yet, but I love the live videos that you put out or the, the music videos that you put out. You have so much energy up there. I mean, you have so well, much. Like, I think you're like a very natural frontman. Was was that always the case for you? Did you feel like you had to like sort of learn how to own that space? Uh, I'm like a fidgety, energetic, like bouncing off the walls human being at the best of times. Uh, <laughs> so I think that like the energy was always there. I think that a lot of the stereotypes about like the discomfort of just being sort of a trumped up version of yourself or at least a like literally performative version of yourself on stage in front of people that especially when you're starting out like don't like there's no there no, there's no pre-existing they know who you are like they you up you're the guy where the only difference between you and them is like the two feet of stage <laughs> yeah and like you kind of need to like v- like justify that yeah for however long you have on a set and like getting over that like getting in my head just took like blowing it and then blowing it again and then doing slightly better. And then like, you know, well, I, being com- comfortable blowing it. Cause if you're comfortable yeah. blowing it, then you're also comfortable doing everything else. You know? Yeah. And I mean, this like, is where having six other bandmates on stage made, made it very good for me. It's like you, it's no matter what, like if you're, if you feel like you're playing on a team, then like, you, you sing know. a swim together. Yeah. And also like, you know, if what I do, it like feels weird to me, but like the band puts on a good show, that gives me the shot to do it again and like try and refine what the hell is going on in my brain and in my body. And so like, for me, it was just like, oh sweet. As long as like the show goes well, we get more chances and like I can maybe figure out stuff that works instead of all these things that don't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and now walk us through the six, walk us through the Avengers assembling. So you have, you have Samson Dry. Jacob helped me. I wrote down the names. I I had to make shout, sure they were all. Shout out to Jacob. Jacob <laughs> Congratulations on graduating. Yeah. <laughs> you made Get it. out here to LA. Our future drummer. He's coming. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you had you had Samson and uh, you had Tori. Mm-hmm. And so the three of you meet at a party. Yeah, we there would like in the early days there was a little bit more like transition because this kind of was initially born out of something that like I think Sam and Tori thought was going to be like just one iteration of like the production duo and friends. So, so like, they were working with you and they were thinking, oh, they'll work with you or work with other people. And- well, the first song that wound up being a song the right played is like them, me, Kevin Basco, who was the first of like other guitarist in Ripe, our friend Charles on keys, a guy named Arlo, who wound up being in our band, but only like five years after that first song. <laughs> um, like the first like Ripe song like that, like it is a ripe song and like was written by me and Tori working together and Sam, like me, Tori and Sam predominantly, but like it was still sort of the tail end of this thought of like, we're going to work with all these different musicians and create sort of a more scene vibe. And then it kind of cohered into me, Sam, Tori and Kevin as like the four people that were originally like getting in the room regularly to write. Uh, and then a kind of rotating door of bass players. And then um, the next time that we like got a chance to record was our first time recording in Berkeley Studios. And we knew we wanted a trumpet. Uh, so <laughs> we called a guy that wasn't Josh Bach, uh, who was busy and who referred us to Josh, who I'd known from a summer program a few years earlier, but hadn't really like made anything with. Uh, and then he, we loved how that went. He was in the band and we asked him to like build us a horn section of people that he trusted. Um, and he brought in Calvin, and uh, 
Kevin wound up as he was graduating, getting the call from a band called Foxygen, who oh, he literally wow. like he'd seen them for the first time when they were opening for Unknown Mortal Orchestra, fell head over heels in love with their music, like really like started making his own music inspired by that. Connected with Jonathan Rado at a concert where John Ray, where Rado was playing with Diane Coffey, who was their drummer. Uh, and that guy's solo project, swap tapes. And then he gets a call from literally his favorite band to do a world tour. <laughs> and like, yes, yeah, yeah. Like, go, go. Yeah. Um, and John was, Kevin's roommate freshman year was like partying with us the entire time, was already like heavily involved with the band, originally in like a super nebulous capacity, then briefly in like a more managerial spot. And then like was also a guitar sub, like when needed. And so like when Kevin departed, we like spend a brief time with a guy named Charlie Kendall, uh, who was a, another roommate of mine. And then when that like ended, like John was our guy and he was already like around. It was like, it was a very seamless transition, but like, holy shit, <laughs> can't believe that happened. <laughs> what about Nadav? Uh, Nadav, we just, we honestly, we had like a pretty regularly cycling uh, door of bass players. We had one guy named PJ who stuck around for a long time, um, but a lot of guys who were around for not very long just to kind of cobble shows together. Then we, that guy Arlo, who played on the very first song, wound up being in the band for, I believe, three years um, and abruptly left right as we were graduating. Literally, like, triggered a sit-down conversation with the other the other members being like, so is this the thing that, like, kills the band or is this the thing that we, like, tough it out and, like, keep going strength to strength? Like, like where, where are we at? Because it's the end of college and this just happened. Uh, and I had one jam session with Nadav in the 160 building. <laughs> a dude named Jonathan Asper will put a band together and Nadav was playing bass and he had me like sing and like stonedly freestyle rap. And it was a really good time and Nadav was a very like a, like able bass player. And so I just like remembered him from that. And so when we were talking about like, who, we, I sh sorry, I'm forgetting an important detail. We had a show two weeks after Arlo departed. Oh, okay. I believe it was two weeks. It might have been less. Where was the show? Right in Music Hall. Okay, wow. So, like, me, like medium, like, mattered. Like, to us, it was the biggest thing that we'd done yeah. yet. Like, it was a big show. And so we needed a bass player for that. And so I mentioned Nadav, and, like, we got our, like, shortlist together, and Nadav was just able to learn the music on such an insanely accelerated schedule that we were able to play the show. And, it's like, not easy the... music. I mean, it's not like... I mean, yeah. Those bass parts are, are complicated. Yeah, no, and he's, like... We, we were so worried about making the next bass call wrong that even after he'd slayed that, we still did him and another person each for like a month to like fully check out like how it was feeling. But like <laughs> he just, he he's, as long as I've known him, he's just felt like a bass player that can like think as quickly as like we need, anyone would need him to think, us included. Well, because when you play live, do you, is there like a fair bit of improvising? Like will you guys go off into moments and? Um, yes and no. I think that like the totally going to space, like jam band <laughs> moments, uh, I think that like I can only speak for myself in terms of what the why of it, but we definitely don't do it very like we don't completely go off script very often mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. we do a lot of like bending within forms but like for me i don't yet know how to do that sort of pure improvisation and not have it become the entire beyond and all of the performance like for mm -hmm. me that makes me think of jam bands and jazz right. and in both of those spheres like the improvisation is why you're there. Right. Like you're not, yeah. you're, you're there for what the like freewheeling brain can do. And the like set forms of the song are almost like a scaffolding with which to do these crazy things and not much more. Which, which makes me think about Dave Matthews to a sense mm -hmm. and like all that, that stuff. But at the same time, you know, you steal 16 bars and then it's 64 by the, the time that you all come back to earth. Yeah. And, and I think that for me, Dave Matthews, like, is kind of a middle ground. Like yeah. I think if like the reason why it feels like not quite that for me is because he'll just take one melodic motif and like just ride that for like right. an extended saxophone solo rather than like completely going off harmonic script and like potentially just having like a few minutes of noise in an attempt to cohere into the next section, which might be cool and also might be kind of middle eight. Like yeah. for me, I love being a spectator for a lot of that improvisation because I think that the risk taking is just breathtaking to watch. Right. Mm. Uh, and the musicianship too. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't necessarily know if the feeling of going for it and blowing it is something that I want to have. I guess like I would like to play a show that has some of those elements of danger while also minimizing moments that I've also had at it shows centered around pure improvisation where I feel like the plot is lost or like right. the thing that is being gone for is just not really being achieved. 
And like, I I do feel uncomfortable asking. Well, it's such a fine like, line too. Yeah. I mean, that's like. Well, and then it, I think it also goes back to like what you want people to experience at a ripe show. You know, I I, I don't I don't want to speak for you, but I'm assuming it's not you're not intention is not to make them like feel like they're lost in space. Like it's a lot more like focused. Yeah. Uh, not right now. You know, we reserve the right to change our minds. <laughs> no, of course. But uh, no, I I think that if you have to fill five hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think that it's the ability to like have that as a flavor. Yeah. Is really cool. But I think that like fish shows, I think something is happening that is worth like seeing in like a, almost like a field research kind of way. (laughs) Like regard, like I happen to like some of their music and dislike some of it, but like, I think that their shows are doing a thing that like other than other jam bands who are in many cases, just feeding directly off of that, like initial structure. Like, I think that their shows are doing something really unique. But all the other shows that are my favorite are like, like it's not like only jam bands are the ones making me stoked. Like there's a lot of people playing like more rigid forms or in some cases the same set every night that like blow me the fuck away. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to also reflect that in what we do. Definitely. Now, when you were doing, when, when you started Ripe, did you immediately use that name and what sort of iteration of that band and also year did you first sort of debut the right project and what shows, like what venues around Boston were you playing when you first started playing live? Speaking just from having talked to you, but like, I know that the live stuff was important to you. From, oh, it, from, it, it still is our like, well, yeah, home, of course. Home base. Uh, but, but there's a lot of, I mean, for us, like, we didn't even want to play live when we started Sleeping Lion. Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> the only reason we played live was because somebody like found out who we were. Like we were sort of kept anonymous. They found out who we were, asked us to play a show, and we're like, "Well, they went through all the all the effort. <laughs> Maybe we should, you know." Like, oh, my friend's gonna be in town. Maybe he'd like to see us play live, you know? Yeah. First, well, I know the first show we played was a battle of the bands in the cabaret downstairs in one of the Emerson College buildings. Oh wow! It was like a black rectangle with a small stage. And we, played, <laughs> we we I think took third or second place in. <laughs> The battle of the bands. Jokes they, on first place, you know. Well, no, they the the way they structured it is that you had to have somebody both see your show and wait the whole night to vote. So the person who played last won. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I only like remembering that because just these memories are fu- like funny to yeah. me. Like, there's there. I like to go on the record. There's no bad blood. No, I mean, uh, I'm sure first place of the Emerson Battle of the Bands <laughs> is not listening to this. Like, goddamn, I knew Robbie <laughs> always held the resentment. I don't think anybody we've ever met has won. A, I've never met a winner of a Battle of the Bands. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the Vibe Tribe won some battles against. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, oh, wow. okay. Yeah, this Big is shout I need to puff out my high school. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why you walk so tall. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there was a company in Toronto called Supernova that like ran Battle of the Bands that were just super predatory to the bands that were performing. Like we didn't make any money. Like the prizes were like a couple of hundred dollars worth of not even cash, like free studio time. Like they were just like stuff basically designed to take advantage of people that like didn't understand how to get started as a band like high school students. And like we, so the, the Battles of the Bands that we won was for a company that like like was trying to rob us blind. Oh. <laughs> well I mean we didn't have like I guess like companies most of the battle of the bands that we played were usually run by charity organizations okay and at least in my hometown and then I think we did a, a charity battle of bands at Berkeley yeah once I did I did um, one in in high school that was more similar to what you're talking about where it was like a company and there was it was it, it felt a little sus we did not get very far in it but <laughs> probably for the best I, I hate asking this question on the show because we almost started the show to not ask this, like not have anybody ask this question, but where did Ripe come from? Literally, we sat down and like hashed out a name. Uh, it's, uh, there are conflicting stories about this, so I'm gonna tell the one that I've been, like, that I think everybody agrees on, uh, which is that like Sam and Tori say that they had this name as an option beforehand, but like they also didn't think they were gonna be in a band. The thing that I know is that their production duo was called Produce the Juice. Uh, and when we were deciding on band names, like it was pointed out, like uh, this, a band called Produce the Juice sounds like it sounds like kind of a strange name for a, a band of musicians. And we're like, oh, okay, uh, let's figure out a better name. And when Ripe was uh, put out, like in the mix, everyone immediately gravitated towards it. <laughs> Uh, well, it's, so, it's funny that I produced the juice is the first record you all put out. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that when, the compromise is that I, it wasn't even thought like the that I think it was just when we were 
like figuring out what we wanted to do, how we wanted to contextualize like our first release, which was done in like the Emerson like college studios because we won that battle of the bands. The next time we did it, hey, hey. Um, <laughs> yeah, you do walk tall. That yeah. is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, this, you're a rare, you're this a rare is my breed. Weird, yeah. This is my weird flex, but okay. Um, no, but so like it, it felt like we were all really excited about it, but like we wanted to kind of shout out like the process to have gotten there. And so like produce the juice wound up feeling like a natural fit for that first release. Well, so this is, this is a hundred percent true. We became a duo because we couldn't, deal with scheduling more than two people. Like we, yeah, we hated to get, booking to practice a, rooms. We hated so booking like, practice rooms. let's do electronic room. music. Because also booking but, practice rooms at Berkeley was like, I know that there are people who got really good at it, but in my head it felt I like had to get up so early. bureaucratic. Like you had to wake up on the day, <laughs> like line up at 7 a.m. And you know, if you didn't, like it was just, there was so much. And, and then you had to sign out stuff. I, it, it stressed me out to no end <laughs> to the point where like Noah and I, we had two other people in what was whatever we were doing and then we just started doing stuff but just me and him because yeah. he was down the hall for me so yes. I, I i preface all this by saying how the fuck did you have seven people <laughs> and and was that hard just like figuring out all those schedules and then even now figuring out who does what what are, i mean we're still figuring out our roles with each other how do you work out seven people seven different you know, brains and, and, and feelings and, and all that and schedules with a lot of talking and sweating and crying <laughs> and holding each other. No, I think that it's the time when things got like more serious, it co coincided with literal conversations about this being everybody's first priority. Mm -hmm. So when things like, like once like touring and like, as things got more, like fully time consuming. We knew that we were coming from a place of this being everybody's number one priority. Um, during the college years, it was a lot of like, take what we can get initially. Like we wound up playing almost an identical set for like a year and change of touring because of like shows, not even touring of like playing shows in Boston because we like couldn't lock down a bass player or like couldn't get enough practice rooms, the practice time to like get new songs up. Like there were definitely moments where like we were making it through kind of by the skin of our teeth. Mm -hmm. uh, but as it started to feel like the more work we put in, the more it was giving us, it just started to make more sense to everybody involved to like, therefore put in real time. So like we wound up getting a practice space in that like dingy area underneath the subway. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then like, once we moved out to Alston, we had a garage that we converted into a practice space. And that like, we've, we've just like, we were using Fordham at one point as well. Like what, like, which is just easier yeah. when you live out in Alston. Uh, cause you can just show up like right as they open and write your name down for right. a long time. For us, I mean, cause we were in Back Bay. Like yeah, going yeah, up, no, the idea of massive, going up to Fordham. Yeah. When, yeah. when you live in Back Bay, Alston seems so far. <laughs> and then you move out to Alston and you're like, I was an idiot. <laughs> it is five subway stops. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that like even getting to those places was predicated on making it through like a period where like practice was tough to make happen. And, um, and now, do you guys explicitly sort of delineate roles like uh, Nadav does this, Samson does this, or like uh, on the creative production, even business sides, or is it more just a conversation? I think for each that new song people have like shown skill sets that they don't need to be like checked in on super hard. Like I think that like. John, in terms of the seven band members, has like the firmest grasp of like what our financial situation means. And so like he's naturally fallen into that being like a thing that has like he he is looked to to be the point person on. Huh. Josh like has very successfully run our Instagram, like with the vast majority of the work being from him. Uh, and so like that is a thing people are fine with and he sort of naturally assumed that role. Uh, so I think that like we're trying to keep it based on what people like and are good at. Uh, I almost want you to go through the <laughs> through the through the list like that's, I mean that's, I mean that, that's fascinating yeah it's we had it's, to divide ourselves you know and we likewise we, we fall like I do Instagram like we like we 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 just sort of go into what we're comfortable yeah there's definitely a gravity to to just yeah how I, people work. I think that the only time it, it ever warrants like a real conversation is that is if some if two people want to do the same thing equal amounts mm -hmm. or if somebody that is sort of naturally fallen into a position does something that all of a sudden like raises an alarm for somebody else feeling how they're represented right like because you know i think that i like the idea of there not being like of being able to look at 
something that is as sprawling as like seven brains in constant motion from a bunch of different angles, like having different people being like the primary managers of individual things to me gets kind of exciting yeah. uh, because by looking at each different facet, you see a, like another glimpse of like the inner workings of the band itself. But that can also get kind of hairy because if like the, for example, like I run the Twitter and like kind of run it as like a single person talking to an audience and sometimes they need to be clear that like I'm not speaking for the band or I am speaking for right. the band because if I don't do that, then I might accidentally say something that like isn't representative of what six potentially other people think. We more or less agree on everything, but I'll sometimes check in if it's like a risky tweet or a little more political or whatever, <laughs> check in with Noah and Josh to make sure that like, okay, I know I'm speaking for myself, but also are we speaking in like a whole place. But I think also our justification is like, okay, if we're going to be two people instead of one one person, then let's do twice as much if we can or like yeah. you know, have that that energy going. So it's cool that you sort of see that like seven sort yeah. of uh, arms of a octopus. That's not how... Seven arms of an octopus. Yeah, that's yeah. not we're, how... We're octopus has been in one fight. <laughs> and speaking of Twitter, we, we kind of met because... A Twitter. We were on. We were yeah. on a, a mega bus, um, and I think Jacob just tweeted at both of us. Yep. And we all got food. I remember it was just like a very surreal because we knew we knew of you mostly because our friend was just obsessed with your music like that. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Jacob. <laughs> Which is awesome. I mean, he, I think he, he. I mean, he did like a whole medley cover, and that interestingly enough was the first time I'd ever heard "Downward" was in his sort of cover version of it because it, yeah, it wasn't you know, on Spotify, it was on Spotify or any, like, it was like it was a live video on YouTube, but, and that was it. Um, you guys hadn't put it out yet. So yeah, no, there's a, still one of the w weirder moments of my entire life is being in a room where it was at soul candy, just played downward in its entirety. <laughs> and I'm just like sitting there being like, I don't know what to do with my body. <laughs> Cause like, you don't want, you can't be that stoked or you're cocky. And yeah. Like, but you also you, like, you can't look glum as like your music <laughs> is brought to life in front of you by people <laughs> that just love what you like, like what you do enough to do it. Like yeah. that's so humbling and awesome. So I just like kind of, kind of like, like awkwardly like twitching in my space for like the duration of the song. <laughs> I, I, in my head, I looked like a fucking frightening mess. I, I more or less cry across the board. Like it could be the happiest song ever, but if somebody like I, I I've been, I'm really lucky because like there are people who've played songs we've written for them live. And when they play it live, I almost always start crying. Like, and, and I, I like, I lose my, my sister. So I, I think, I think he appreciated when you, uh, when you changed the lyric to include his, uh, his name, uh, call me Sideback, Jacob Herlick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, he's a lucky rabbit. <laughs> uh, but we, we've done that since, actually, in, in rooms where he's not in. I, <laughs> I don't have a great answer as to why, but it makes us la like smile every that's time. Funny. So I'm going to go with that's the why. That's, it makes that's great. Now, what were, what were like the first sort of instances of like industry taking notice of you guys? Like when, when did it sort of hit you? Oh, like we can, we can tour and we can do this. And like, when was that? Like the first... Like we, after graduating, basically came to like a soft consensus that like we were going to give it six months of working hard and then see where we were at. And six months after, like almost to the day, like what happened is a video that we cut in the Berkeley studios was posted on a Reddit group called R Listen to This. Oh, yeah. And made it to the front page of that and then made it to the top of that front page, which gave us like a like... I think, it was, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like a 200,000 like view on a video spike in like 48 wow. hours. And I think that from there, Max, who was managing us at the time, uh, connected with our, still our manager, Jason. And so our agent was the first person to like come onto our team that like was sort of a, a, a like serious sign for us and like a sense, of, a sense of validation that like what we were doing was at least like in some way connecting the way that we were hoping it would. That's amazing. I, I want to talk about Downward for, for a second because sure. that song is incredible. I mean, I, I, yeah. when, I first, when I first heard Jacob's cover, but also just, you know, it, and it's clear that that song resonates um, well, with everybody. But I think what's really interesting too is that it, it is a pop song to a sense. Like there is something very, I hate using like the word like commercial, but there is something that, that just gets stuck in your head so beautifully about that song. When you were making it, like what, you know, what were you going through um, both like creatively and also, you know, that inspired a song like that, you know? I like the inspiration, like I generally like to obscure exactly what songs are about because it's more fun for me to watch what they become. Right. For me, like 
that song it was one of the headspaces it was written in was like after playing a like a frat show and i won't say which frat because they weren't <laughs> bad to us it was just where my head was at at the time but like it just it felt like a super weird like pull in both directions of like really being grateful to be able to play and to be able to do what we were doing and get some people responding super positively and also being in a room full of people and feeling like there were a lot of people here that like i wouldn't I don't like right now in that moment. And like the feeling of being tugged in both directions of like, this is what I want to do. What I want to do is play this music for people who are receptive to my music in a way that lets me continue to make this music for my life. Hmm. And also being in a room where doing that was like feeling kind of icky. Hmm. So that's the extent to which I'm going to answer where I was at on that. But in terms of the, the like. Pop, well, did you expect that kind of response from that specific song? Cause I mean, you, you guys have, a lot of songs, but that song particularly like seems to have this life that it, that it has. I I suppose. Um, I guess to me, like I like the idea that a song can like gets like I think it's a, a song getting stuck in your head and being sung back at you. Like those things to me are part of what I love about what music can do. Like I think that literally the like the feeling of being in a room where the room is like singing along at top volume to something is like absolutely crazy to me in such a positive way and like being able to tap into those feelings excites me uh for me it's more like what separates pop from non-pop is like with pop the like wide the width of the accessibility is an ends not a means mm. an end not a means whereas i think with anything else like if you're using like techniques of get of making things memorable to serve a different agenda, that just seems like making affecting music to me, right. regardless of whether it scans as poppy or not. Our, our joke is that, that uh, when people ask if we make pop, we're like, well, not until it's popular. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah, that is what it technically, you know. But but I I think that for for me today, like be, making pop music is making music where like if it's not popular, it doesn't exist. Like mm. it's not in the service of a different agenda. It's in the service of creating this communal moment. So if it fails to, it just isn't what it's intending to be. Right. Yeah. Uh, whereas like at least my experience with your music, it seems to be coming from a personal place where you might continue to make it even if nobody was listening. Well, I think what we're trying yeah. to sort of do, you know, what we've been sort of biting on is like making something that does feel like it comes from a personal place, but has more of an intention to be digested. So I think that if, if we were left to our own devices, we'd play pretty inaccessible music. I think a lot of stuff I used to make was like almost aggressively unlistenable um, as far as just the amount of patience that are required to sort of chew on it and get, get through it. But yeah. You, you wrote a, a lyric down, though, that you, uh, you said was your favorite lyric of, of your songs. Can you say it? <laughs> Wonder if we've all changed. Kind of strange. I'm usually the last one to recognize growth. Now it's all I see. Wonder if we've all changed. Kind of strange. I am usually the last one to recognize growth. Now it's all I see. Immediately, I want to disclaim, like, I, I get very down on myself with lyrics as they age. Well, what, what, what about that line resonates with you? Um, I guess for me, it like, it is one line that evokes like a very specific memory for me of like catching up with somebody that I wasn't even very close with in high school, but who like we'd reconnected in the aftermath and like we caught up over coffee and I just like, it was a wonderful interaction, but it also just got me in a very bittersweet headspace about Toronto and about like the mm -hmm. idea of like a home you voluntarily leave and then continue to say that you miss. So I guess to me, like looking back and feeling still proud of the lyrics, but not necessarily wanting to live and die by them now, given that there are newer lyrics for right. songs that aren't yet out and that I hope will be, you know, I just, I, I hope that I keep getting better. I know eventually that won't be up to me to decide, <laughs> but I mean, but your, uh, I mean, your last record was incredible. Well, thank um, you. And and there, there's, I, I was, I was jamming out to Flipside this morning. Um, that's, I, I think, other than now, one of my favorite songs on. Dude. Other than your Lola cover, that's a, that's a. You got to do another one, but Yoda, the the Weird Al, the Weird uh, Al version. The uh, um. We'll send that to just you, though. Yeah, <laughs> Dropbox to the Sleeping Lion guys. Please, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> Jacob was also telling me the, the the Green Headband Club. What what's had that start? What's that? That's that started because of Connor Marr. Uh, we found, I think, Calvin's partner Sally sent us a video of Connor, who is like the green headband guy, like <laughs> dancing like out of controlledly 
to follow through at a festival we played called Levitate. And like we like we all liked it. We put it on our social media, shouted it out. And then me and John bumped into him again at a fish concert, wound up hanging with him all night. Uh, and from there, it's kind of like grown into like a friendship where like we, he is a person that like I consider a friend uh, that has come out of just a love of our music. But he's also kind of taken the initiative to like turn what he does into like a community aspect of what we do. Huh. I've never seen somebody do what he's doing under any title. It's grown into a thing that we now like are doing somewhat together. We're about to have the first, I think it's called like a green headband gang social hour right before we play Bonner. We're doing it in Nashville. That's awesome. And like for us, like it feels like a huge gift. Like we get to grow what we're about alongside somebody we respect who also like lets like our story stay rooted in like these organic moments of just people coming together because they feel the same thing about something. Hmm. Uh, so it, it feels like a very exciting thing for me. It's also like in a state of pretty like rapid growth and change. So like, I don't know yet what it's going to be, which in and of itself is also exciting. I just get stoked on stuff like this because to me, this sounds like, I don't know. It sounds like something that feels very us that we didn't ask for hmm. that just sort of appeared on our doorstep. <laughs> and lets us do something that we get really excited about on a regular basis uh, from a place that feels, like, lucky. Well, it's very you you guys, too. I mean, it is very organic and very community-oriented. So, yeah, shout, shout out to Connor. <laughs> Last but not least, what is next for Right? We're going to tour through the summer. We're playing a bunch of festivals. Uh, we can't tell you all of our touring dates, but we have a lot of touring dates between now and, like, say, March of next year uh, that will be announced soon. We have a lot of new music written and uh, we're trying to figure out the best things that we can do with that. Like we're writing it a, like an unprecedented clip, which is really, really cool feeling. <laughs> uh, but we also are in a like what feels like a radically different place than prior. We're now like I feel like up until you release an album, you're all you're kind of like building potential, building potential towards like this mission statement. And then once you like make a statement like that. You're, like no matter what we do, it is going to be like we want it to be like directly compared with this previous work in a way that I don't know mm -hmm. we felt a pressure towards prior. It didn't feel with like the album like, needed to beat our previous EPs because a lot of time had passed and we were doing it at a significantly elevated right. level right off the bat. So it automatically had that. Yeah. yeah. And so it was something we were very comfortable being like, this is the right mission statement. But now like I think that that was for its time, like the best we could have done. And so I want to, I want whatever's next to be that for today and mm -hmm. also therefore to beat the previous, like I would love to release a second record that like is actively trying to be the best record that we've put out. Well, and we've talked about it and, and we've definitely had this conversation where it's like the songs that, you know, we have out is like, oh, this was good asterisk for when we made it, you know, like want to get rid of that asterisk and just be like, these are great songs, like. Yeah, you know. and I, I, for me, our first record is the first thing that I still feel that way about looking back. Like I, for me, it's it's not a matter of a lack of ownership for the previous record. It's just like I now feel like I want to at least work as hard as I felt I'd worked for the previous record with all these new skills right. mm -hmm. to create something that feels like the same, like our baby at that time, but for twenty nine. So you keep Robbie. learning so much. Yeah, to like get better at the at the craft. Uh, well, yeah, no, yeah. Robbie, thank you so much for Dude, for coming on. Much appreciated. It's really it, good yeah. to see you again. It's good to see you too. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is fucking awesome. This love keeps We'd like to thank Jägermeister and Isotope for their early support of Talking Lion.